0: Perinatal Stories Australia. Welcome to Perinatal Stories Australia. My name is Rebecca and every episode we provide a listening ear to the lived experiences of mental illness during pregnancy and postpartum. I hope this podcast reduces stigma, informs listeners about support services available and inspires those on their own healing journey. More importantly, I hope you can hear these stories and know you're not alone. Thank you for being here to hold space for the stories we often keep to ourselves. Hi everyone, welcome back. I'm joined today by my very beautiful friend, Sarah. Sarah means so much to me we were actually in MBU together nearly two years ago now um, with the beautiful Tegan who you've heard in episode three so yeah I started to cry before we recorded this I was just so happy so I'm hoping I've got all my tears out of the way and we can just have a good chat um but welcome it's so good to have you here
1: Thank you. It's so good to be here. Yes. And it's, it means so much to me to be a part of this. I think it's a, it's just such a wonderful project you've taken on and such a great way to honor the, the challenges of the experiences that we've had and to share those with others in a really like healing, helpful, beautiful way. And it's, it's just wonderful to see, I guess, between you and me and Tegan, how different we are from where we were two years ago and this is a really lovely lens to kind of view our motherhood experience so far.
0: Yeah because it's very surreal to think it's been nearly two years but like how far have you come in those two years?
1: Yeah my sister-in-law had a baby last week and it's absolutely wild seeing my daughter Tilly standing next to her cousin, this newborn baby, it does not feel like two years. (laughs) And at first, when I, until he was younger, when it hadn't been as long for me, I found it a bit daunting sometimes being around newborns because it was in some ways triggering back to my experience. Whereas now it felt like being around this baby you know, newborns are still a wonderful, incredible, awful challenge um, <laughs> wrapped up in a beautiful, warm blanket. But I think it was a marker of how far I feel like I've come, that actually I've come to a place where I feel like parenting doesn't have to have all of those negative connotations that it once had for me.
0: Um, I almost want to sum up a bit of your story here, if I can, but in the sense that on Instagram especially but you know in life as well we always see posts along the lines of healing isn't linear recovery isn't linear but i think we often put so much emphasis on you know healing getting to that end goal of being healed or recovered that when we do let's say go back a step whether it's a step or a lapse we don't give ourselves a lot of compassion for that mm. we automatically assume we've failed. Um, So it's easy to say, oh, healing isn't linear. But when you're in it, actually coping with that reality of healing isn't linear is its own battle.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: And I'm so honoured you're here to share your story, not just because I love you and you were an integral part of my journey, (laughs) but because I know a lot of us really need that reminder that our healing isn't linear, but that that's okay. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think that's a really a really great way of wrapping it up and it's definitely been, I'm sure this is the case for everyone that parenthood kind of breaks you down and makes you, breaks you down in a positive way, I mean, kind of forces you to uh, break apart the nature of your identity and your personality and your hopes and dreams and kind of put those back together. Uh, but I feel like for me it was like a series of stages where I thought that I'd like, been through the greatest challenge I'd faced and learnt so much about myself and it would be all up and up, like, great, you know, we've had the the crisis point in the rom-com and now we can move on to the happily ever after. But then I did, yeah, have to go back to that place a couple of times. And as you say, that really brought home the lesson that, oh, wow, it's a real thing that <laughs> um, progress isn't Guaranteed, and that it's not, I guess, as well. Recovery isn't linear, and when it is non linear, that's not value laden at all. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily something you can control. It doesn't mean, you know, there are no medals for like winning at recovery. It's just kind of one of those things, in the same way that maybe you have twins, or maybe you have one baby, and maybe the baby has blonde hair, or black hair, or brown hair similarly yeah it's just you get served what you get served but absolutely like it's it's been a very um it's been very humbling to realize how little control I have but also empowering to learn what control I do have if that makes sense and you're absolutely right to say yeah it's been a big lesson in separating shame and those kind Mm. of negative judgments from my experience of health.
0: And I think as you say as well, that value that we're putting on our health, our recovery, mm. that doesn't serve us at all. No. And it's so common, you know, we all do it. I do it. I'm guilty of it too. And I think that that's something going forward. I think a lot of us need to let go of, or just recognize that there is no representation of how hard you're working on your recovery or anything. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Maybe if we start your story now, um, from what I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, it started almost immediately when your beautiful little girl was born, Tilly. You had immediate postpartum anxiety that came out of nowhere, but especially around sleep.
1: Yeah, that's right. So We had a C-section and that was kind of okay for me. It was, you know, not what we were expecting, but I felt kind of taken care of and protected throughout that process. I knew I was in expert hands and there were people all around me protecting me. And it's funny looking back, I did a lot of things to try and avoid the need for a C-section. And then it happened and it really wasn't. Like it was okay for us. It wasn't that big bad thing that I'd kind of been afraid of. And like the anaesthetist was just fantastic and he was sitting by my head just chatting and like all of the doctors were – was kind of an ideal team, I guess, because they seemed – very competent, but also very relaxed, which then put me in the mind frame of, I always love it with medical things when it seems routine to the doctors, because, you know, that always like puts my brain in the space of like, right, this is the first time it's happened to me. But, you know, you're not that worried about it. You're already thinking about what you're going to have for lunch, you know. Um, So it's funny that I spent so much time worrying about a C-section, but then really hadn't thought about what the experience of, parenting a newborn would be like and how that would affect my mental health so in contrast to that experience when we were back in the room with Tilly I suddenly just felt like the massive weight of parenting kind of fall on me Mm -hmm. yeah really felt just this huge weight of anxiety and yes it was in particular around sleep straight away I knew sleep deprivation was a thing for parents I knew that we would have to cope with waking up a lot but I kind of hadn't processed what that would mean for me that suddenly my sleep schedule was entirely contingent on someone else who had no way of thinking about my well-being you know uh, of holding on and making sure I got good rest but was kind of expressing basic survival needs to me that I needed to respond to quickly and yeah I think as well as that really unique experience honestly of being around a tiny newborn wild animal wild creature you know it's getting used to not being plugged into a perfect survival system 24 7 in a beautiful warm internal world as well as all of that it very quickly showed up for me. I think I've had anxiety around sleep for much of my life, around how much sleep I would get, when I would get it, would I be able to fall asleep? And I was not prepared for that obstacle to show up so suddenly. But, I, yeah, my days were at once wonderful because I was in love with this gorgeous little baby that I had. But my entire day was filled with dread around sunset coming and knowing that I was about to enter, it felt like entering a battle stadium fight pit where, you know, my goal was to get sleep and I was up against this adversary of no sleep being exposed to like sudden screaming in the middle of the night and just absolute uncertainty. You know, we we often talk about uncertainty being at the core of a lot of anxiety. And mm. that was just so much it for me. I was so uncertain about what my night was going to look like. I was uncertain about what the baby would need, and whether I would be able to meet those needs. And really uncertain about, in those early days, it just felt like it was never going to end. It was always going to be the immediate postpartum period. And I couldn't see a way out of it. I just, I almost felt stuck in this weird, like groundhog day where, oh my gosh, what if this is my life for the rest of my life, you know?
0: Yeah. And you didn't recognize that anxiety until it came out physically.
1: Yeah. uh, In gearing up to do this episode with you, I was thinking about my experience or how I would characterize it and I think yeah it's it's only with the benefit of hindsight that I'm able to acknowledge that I was immediately anxious at the time it felt to me like I was normal (laughs) you know I was my normal self with yes a baseline level of anxiety but you know high coping skills and masking skills. Um, so I was the same, but the world had changed and just become incredibly difficult. So the way my mind perceived it was not that there had been an internal change to my emotions and my experience of mental well-being or illness, but rather that the level of difficulty on the world had gone from, you know, a pretty normal baseline up to like a thousand out of ten. And so if I acknowledged that I felt anxious, it felt like that was just because I was in, like that was an appropriate response, you know. It felt to me like the world was just so hard that all of these tasks I was doing to look after the baby were nearly impossible. And it was just incredibly frightening to not know if I was going to sleep, to not know how to put the baby to sleep. That felt almost normal in a way, which I think is why I couldn't see my way out of it. And you're right, the first hints that I had of that there was something wrong with me, that I was unwell, came out physically in particularly, funnily enough, around sleep in those early days, that even after getting the baby to sleep, I would have these bouts of insomnia where I would just wake up and be wide awake, even though Andrew, my husband, and the baby, Tilly, were sleeping. I had these awful nightmares when I was able to sleep that would leave me awake and I felt like a small child, like I was shaking because of how strong these nightmares were. And then through the days, a lot of physical symptoms around kind of restlessness that I could not sit still and felt like I constantly had to be doing something. And then things like no appetite and so on, which kind of got worse so to give a kind of a, a picture of the time frames we were in hospital for maybe four days and the day we went home i suddenly felt like i was really breathless and couldn't catch my breath coming up the stairs to our apartment which is two flights of stairs like i was you know my chest was heaving and i was out of breath i felt like i couldn't sing more than one verse of a nursery rhyme to the baby without losing my breath Uh, and so I ended up by the time she was one week old going to the doctor because I thought it must have been a complication with the c-section you know I thought maybe there was a problem with blood clots or something because I just felt so intensely physically unwell that I was convinced that there was something really quite serious going on and so you know walked into the GP and said, I'm one week post C-section, can't breathe, you know, feel a bit tingly, feel all of this pressure in my chest. And it feels like my heart is racing. And you could see the GP's face kind of drop like, oh, wow, (laughs) you know, we might have to call an ambulance or, you know, call a crash cart. They did urgent blood tests and chest x-ray and so on. And it was all entirely normal, which was a great relief. Because, yeah, it was such an intense physical experience that it really blew me away that it was, in inverted commas, all in my head, um, in the sense of being driven by mental illness. That was probably like the strongest physical response I've ever had to anxiety symptoms. So at that point, the first message was, oh, hey, you know, you're physically well, great news. So it seems like this is probably anxiety-related. And the message then was keep an eye on it and come back if there's a problem. Uh, And in retrospect, I think it might have been helpful to have kind of a more detailed conversation at that point because particularly with all of the effort it took to actually get into the doctor with a one-week-old baby and when I was feeling so unwell. Um, hindsight is 2020, but it probably would have helped to start something more then. So I think only a week after that, I took myself back to the GP because the insomnia and those physical symptoms, the breathlessness had gotten worse still. And I said, look, I, I really think we need to do something about this. Like this isn't working for me. Uh, like I kind of feel, I felt really... Unhinged isn't quite the word, but adrift. Like I had experienced anxiety before, but I had always felt like there were tools that I could use to pull myself back from the edge. But this felt like, yeah, I just felt like I was, I guess, getting further and further from the coastline, you know, drifting away into this ocean of anxiety. And I needed to do something before I felt like I was beyond being able to help myself, I guess. So went to the GP at that point and she agreed and we had that more detailed chat around what my symptoms were, what I felt like was causing it, positive supports and also I guess risk factors and at that point she started me on sertraline with the intent that it would take a few weeks to start working. So better to start it then than to kind of regret to like look back in a couple of weeks and wish that we'd started it sooner. So I started on the sertraline when Tilly was two weeks old and that was the first time I'd taken any medication and that felt like a, a big step. I'd grown up with a bit of a like a fear of medicating mental illness that if you medicated it that must mean it's actually serious and oh my gosh you know I'd started to kind of overcome that through the experience of knowing how many friends had needed that kind of support but it still felt like a big deal and it was another marker to me of being in uncharted territory This felt really big and serious and also grown up. (laughs) It was a major factor in my early experiences of parenting of like, wow, I'm the grown up in this situation. This is like a lot to take on.
0: (laughs) It is a big deal. It's confronting because you're not just dealing with anxiety, you're parenting a baby. And then you have to wrap your head around, quote unquote, I thought I was stronger than medication. You know, I thought I was strong enough to swim back to the shore. You're telling me I need a life raft now. (laughs) It's that in itself is the way that that impacts our sense of self, our identity in its own right is enough let alone adding that on top of what we're already going through as parents
1: a hundred percent that's such a good way of putting it and I think part of the reason it was a shock was anxiety had been a part of my identity I knew I was an anxious person I had spoken to psychologists before but I think my identity was I'm a person with anxiety who nonetheless keeps it together you know I have I have perfectionistic tendencies. I do get stressed in social situations. It kind of gets out of control every now and again, but then I see a psychologist and I feel better. And yeah, I think it's this we opened by talking a bit about how how humbling and kind of reflective the experience of perinatal mental illness can be in breaking down how you see yourself. And I think yeah, starting medication was one of the big steps for me in starting to unravel, break down how I had seen myself before parenthood because I had to take that away. Yeah, like previously I had always been able to be my own life raft when I had felt like I'd come adrift and it was humbling to think like, oh, wow, okay, (laughs) you know, Now I'm one of those people who needs extra help for this. Mm -hmm. And it also it kind of took away the floor at that point that previously with anxiety, seeing a psychologist had been enough. Now, if I was taking medication, what else might I need? You know, Uh, the GP said to me sleeplessness and kind of that initial wave of newborn struggle reaches its peak between six to eight weeks of age for the baby So she was being, she was trying to be very helpful and proactive in saying, so we need to start looking after you now to build up a bit of a reserve of energy and tolerance for you before you get to that point. But it became a bit of a boogeyman for me where I was thinking Mm. like, oh my gosh, I already feel terrible. How much worse am I going to feel? And they've already given me medication. What if I end up feeling even worse than this? And I think possibly in that first visit, this GP, I really uh, felt so grateful to have found her because she did have a real interest in looking after new parents and babies and so on. And I think in that visit, when I started on the search lane, she might have mentioned the mother-baby unit for the first time. That might have been the first time I heard of it. And I think in retrospect, it was great that she started I guess, kind of socializing that concept, you know, that I was able to hear it a number of times before it became a reality for me. But at the time, it also had a bit of an anxiety-inducing impact because it felt like I'd started down this road of, okay, I'm medicated. Maybe at some point being in a mental hospital is in my future. And that felt awful at that point because... You know, I'm kind of embarrassed to say now, but in my naivety, people who go to mental hospital, or so I thought, never come back. They might be released from hospital, but they're never sane again. And I think it revealed this real binary in my head of, you know, there are sane people and then there are mentally ill people. And if you go into the wrong category in inverted commas, there's no coming back and your life looks very scary and sad. Uh, which is, yeah, that is something that I've only kind of realised in retrospect. It's yet another lesson that I had to break down and relearn.
0: And, I mean, I was very similar. When I was first told about an MBU, I was almost, I mean, confronted, yes, but there was also a part of me that was like, do I really need this type of help?
1: Because yeah. yeah. Not that I was
0: offended, but you go down that road of, okay, I'm medicated, the only other option for me now is to be institutionalised. That's yeah. the end of the world. There's no coming back from that in your head. And yeah, that in itself, again, is another thing to be anxious about when you're already anxious.
1: (laughs) Yes, for sure. And it's something I've spent a fair bit of time thinking about because when other friends have had babies, I've tried to really reflect carefully on how do I broach my experiences with them. You know, a lot of my friends do know about the struggles that I had, but I always feel like with new parents, I want to say, hey, you might have a really hard time and there's lots of help available, but like it's such a tricky thing to think about how do you say that in a way that will like stick in their mind so they remember it at 3 a.m. when they feel like they're at breaking point but not in the moment add to their anxiety and think, oh, my gosh, this could get worse than it is. And honestly, I think that's one of the reasons that this project of yours is so powerful that I think the ideal is everyone just has a better background understanding of how much new parents can struggle, the fact that there are resources and the fact that people get better. So you don't have to say, lovely to meet you and the baby. By the way, you might get incredibly unwell (laughs) and need to be hospitalized. It'd be lovely if people just knew that in the way that we know sometimes you have to be hospitalized for diabetes or appendicitis. Yeah,
0: I think that the mental health literacy stuff is something that, I want people to know what support is available. Like, yeah, you might not need it. Your friend might though. And yeah. it's okay. It's like, okay, if you're sick physically, you could go to the GP, you could go to a specialist, you could go to emergency department, you could even go to a naturopath if you want to. Like there are options. And I want the same for mental health. They're not there to lock you up forever. They're there to actually <laughs> help you. Believe me, the mental institute does not want you to stay. They yeah. want you to go back to your family. <laughs>
1: 100%. That's exactly right. And I think, like, uh, we'll get into this, but, you know, mm-hmm. as I did need help over a few different recurrences throughout the postnatal period, it did get easier for me the second time and the third time around kind of having already crossed the Rubicon and having that awareness of, you know, the first time I sought help, it did just feel so different to a physical illness. It almost would have mm-hmm. felt better if. I was having a heart attack or, you know, a pulmonary embolism because I would have felt like others were in control in the same way I'd felt when I was having the C section. Whereas my experience of mental health up until that point was I have to do this on my own and I'm either going to be okay on my own or I'm going to be locked up. Whereas over this journey, over the past couple of years, I've realized no, like it's not that different to physical illness. You can be okay on your own you can be somewhat okay on your own you can be not coping and there's a whole heap of people who can sit with you where you are meet you where you are and kind of pick up the slack when you need it and just as you say their goal is not to institutionalize people it's to help you get back to the place you want to be whatever that looks like for you
0: yeah and again going back to the beginning it is value laden you know Mm -hmm. we associate that with okay, I'm really broken now that they're even bringing that up. Whereas, as you said, it's sometimes easier in our mind, quote unquote, to think that, oh, I'm having a heart attack because no one's going to judge me as a person if I have a heart attack. Whereas you feel that they're judging you because, oh, you couldn't control your mental health. Like we are associating our sense of self, our values with the support that we may or may not need for our mental health.
1: Yeah. It was that added layer of, I'm feeling very anxious and like I'm not coping. And then I feel less than or like I'm missing out because I'm not coping it was just like an extra layer that I didn't need, you know. It was such a confusing time in a way because I do think there is a rhetoric around how difficult it is for new parents that it's a, like mm. it's a really tough time having a newborn and there is a lot of support in terms of the way that friends and family will wrap around you if you're lucky and acknowledge this is tough. They are crying a lot. Who knows? They're wild little animals. Um, But like that was, I think that was almost a part of my problem that it added to that sense I had that I was unchanged, but the world had just gotten harder because there is this rhetoric that the newborn period is very hard. It was difficult for me to differentiate like the stresses and anxiety that are baseline from something that did need extra intervention. And even I tried to talk to a couple of the midwives when we were still in hospital to say, I am feeling very anxious about sleep and feeding and, you know, getting this right. And what if I drop the baby on the floor? Those kind of things. And they were, they kind of tried to buck me up and they said, oh, you know, all new parents think that. You'll be right. Mm -hmm. Which... (sighs) you know maybe they were trying not to add to my anxiety but it it kind of yeah it did make me feel like my experience was i was in a difficult set of circumstances but I should just be able to manage it because other parents manage it and it is it's kind of hard to grapple with and summarize because it's so multi-dimensional and at the same time I did feel like I had a pretty easy baby as these things go you know for all of my anxiety about sleep she didn't sleep that poorly and she was generally pretty content um we did struggle with things like feeding and so I was entirely unprepared for the challenge of dealing with making formula and sanitising bottles and all of that and mm. I can intensely remember being very stressed that I wouldn't be able to, I physically wouldn't be able to manage to find time in the day to wash L4 mm. bottles And therefore we'd head into nighttime and the baby might wake up and we might not have a clean bottle. And now looking back at that from here, it seems obvious that, wow, something was happening to me to put me in that position of fear, because, you know, even with the extra sanitizing and so on, that's a task of maybe half an hour or 45 minutes. And it's not insurmountable but at the time yeah it just felt like that actually was an incredibly difficult thing that I might not physically be able to do and that my baby's survival depended on it you know that if she woke up in the night and we didn't have a bottle ready maybe she'd starve and maybe 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 all of the what-ifs that now I can call out as what-ifs but at the time just felt as I say I keep coming back to it just seemed like a normal It's funny, isn't it? Because at once it seemed like I was unchanged and I was my normal self. I was in a situation that was much harder than anything I'd ever experienced, but that was entirely normal for other people. You know, Mm -hmm. they were able to cope with this extreme level of difficulty of new parenthood. So therefore there was something missing in me (laughs) that I wasn't able to cope, but I wasn't able to acknowledge that as, illness i saw that as like a kind of a character deficiency um it kind of it's one of the other women who was in the mbu with us i don't know her full story but she had experienced postpartum psychosis i think because she had had so little sleep after her baby was born and i remember her mentioning people had told her it was normal to be sleep deprived as a new Mm. parent so when she literally did not sleep she thought that was just to be expected.
0: She didn't sleep for 10 days. And I remember this story because it is, it is so normal. Like, oh, you're meant to lose sleep. So you don't think about your symptoms as symptoms. You think of them as normality.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think her story shows there's a real danger in the rhetoric that we provide to new parents. It kind of normalises what can be incredibly difficult to the extent that she didn't realise just how unwell she was. I think a similar thing was at play that, my experience seemed similar enough to the way we characterize new parenthood as a society mm. that I wasn't able to differentiate that something was wrong. You know, people do say it's so hard. So then when I found it so hard, that just seemed like, oh, well, this is what I signed up for. And, you know, if if I'm not able to cope with this, I probably should have thought of that before I decided to have a baby, you know? Yeah.
0: And the the line between what actually is normal versus what's a symptom, there is a lot of crossover. Mm-hmm. And I guess because we don't have that mental health literacy or we don't have that awareness, it becomes very problematic when they do arise and we don't know it or our loved ones can't see it either. Absolutely. So let's go back maybe to the part of your story where you've started sertraline, getting over the identity crisis that comes with agreeing to take medication. You wrote on your submission that once you started taking it, you thought, "All right, I'm fixed. It's all uphill from here." <laughs> kind of thing. You wrote "fixed" on there in quotes, and I thought I need to yes. dissect this. And it wasn't until Tilly was four months old that you noticed it. So I'll let Absolutely. you speak on that. Yes,
1: yes. So I was lucky that I began to feel the effects of the sertraline within three weeks. And by that point, Tilly was close enough to six weeks old and had started to do longer sleeps overnight. I kind of felt like I was hitting my stride a little bit. And I remember one afternoon thinking, oh, I'm not anxious. I feel happy. (laughs) And um, from that moment on, I had this quite lovely period in retrospect where I did feel well and it was a bit of an insight I think into what a more standard newborn experience might have been like where yes there were hard parts and you know times when the baby would cry during witching hour and I didn't know what on earth was going on and I'd get frustrated with her and sad and exhausted and worn out and it still felt like a lot to You know, get the baby out of the door on time for appointments and to make it to coffee dates with friends. But it just felt so much easier. And so I would be able to take her for walks in the afternoon and I would feel like I could get the bottles washed and still have time to have a shower and to maybe even read a book to the baby without feeling entirely overwhelmed. And that was wonderful. It really felt like the clouds had parted. And I thought, thank goodness for antidepressants. You know, I'm now the biggest (laughs) advocate for medication. This is wonderful. This is all I needed. And so I kind of became a convert from this position of like, oh my gosh, antidepressants, terrifying, to, as I said in my submission, I'm fixed. That's it. This is like the best kind of transactional medicine I went to the doctor with a problem. She gave me a script. I took the tablets and I'm all good. Now I can do this. Super mum, here we go. No problems ever. Uh, But? (laughs) (laughs) She reached around four months old, four and a half months old, and hit the four-month sleep regression. Hmm. And it kind of all came crashing down again. And this was another big step for me in... Uh, I guess my first lesson that recovery isn't linear and another step in breaking down my understanding of myself and my situation and how those interacted, where we went from six hour blocks of sleep overnight, which was amazing. And then we went from that to She would suddenly wake up between every hour and 90 minutes again and she would be very fussy and I wouldn't know was she hungry or was she trying to do another poo or was she just teething, all of those things. You know, you run through the list in your mind playing newborn bingo, (laughs) newborn at that point, baby bingo with yourself. Uh, Yeah, so she was up many, many times in the night, taking a long time to settle. So I went from... Getting maybe seven or eight hours of sleep a night to getting at most six hours of sleep a night across four or five blocks, and it was just devastating <laughs> um, to my well restedness to begin with. But then also, I thought that the medicine had fixed my anxiety, particularly my anxiety around sleep, and this challenge to challenged my sleep just brought it all to a massive head again and sent me kind of flying backwards, I was back to that position of I would wake up and enjoy maybe the first two hours of being awake during the day and then the rest of the day was spent absolutely dreading sundown, first of all for the witching hour and just the experience of being around Tilly crying a lot during that period, which I had begun to find incredibly triggering she's always been very strong-willed and vocal and she had a very loud and passionate cry so it was quite a sensory experience but also all of the then emotional and mental psychological kind of connotations of that around I love this little person so much and she's unhappy that in itself is terrifying and saddening the secondary connotations of I can't meet her needs and that's why she's crying and then the tear below that of what does that mean for me as a mother? Particularly, I think since we had been doing so well, you know, I kind of had a long way to fall from, oh my gosh, I'm super mum to crap. <laughs> it's all, it's all fallen apart. And it was, you know, a bit of a mirage and I actually don't know what I'm doing. So uh, my anxiety pretty well went back to where it was at the start. I don't think I had the same breathlessness and so on, but all of the other symptoms came back. I just felt physically unable to sleep, to get the bottles washed on time, to get out of the house, to do anything more than very basic feeding the baby, changing the nappies, like the absolute bare minimum of tasks throughout the day. And what's more, on top of the anxiety, it felt like there was this additional black layer of depression that grew on top of that Mm -hmm. it you know I'm sure it was happening on kind of a, a hormonal and a neurological level but psychologically it felt like it grew out of that thinking around I'm so anxious that I can't meet the baby's needs what if that says something about who I am as a mother? It felt like anxiety posed the question and depression stepped in to give the answer of, of course, you're a terrible mother. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. This baby is perfect. She's the most beautiful creature to ever have lived and you are absolutely failing her, that you cannot meet her needs, you cannot get her to sleep. I began counting how many books I read her in a week and being convinced that I was letting her down. I love reading and I was not able to share my love of reading with her. So therefore I was an awful parent because I'd only managed to read her one book this week and she would never catch up because the first thousand days are the most important. And you can, you know, I could go on all day um, verbalizing those horrible thought patterns, but you can begin to see how they blossomed. And I kind of really realized I was in trouble when I was trying to get her to sleep one evening and I'd been walking around my bedroom for maybe an hour this darkened room listening to the white noise again (laughs) patting her endlessly and she wouldn't go to sleep and the thought crossed my mind of she and Andrew would be better off without me and it felt like that came from nowhere and I kind of thought oh oh no (laughs) that that is dangerous. This has been a bit of a story of me, I guess, being a bit, finding it difficult to understand what was happening to me and therefore being a bit slow on the uptake. And I don't mean that in at all a derogatory way to myself, but you know, I was a bit behind in understanding the symptoms I was experiencing. That was a flag where I thought this, yeah, I need to get more help. So it was at that point that I went back to the GP to have another conversation because that just felt like a threshold that I didn't want to cross. Then uh, again, it was kind of testament to how lucky we were in finding this great GP practice that I had got an appointment at the practice with a different GP from my normal one. I can't exactly remember what prompted me to do this but I called the receptionist and said is there any chance I could see my doctor and she must have heard something in my voice because she said it seems like you're having a hard time can you tell me a bit more what this is about And that really set off the waterworks. Uh, I find it very hard to break down in front of other people, but I found myself suddenly crying on the phone to this receptionist saying, I feel like I'm in a really bad place mentally. I've got this four-month-old baby. The doctor has been very helpful with this, and I want to talk to her about what I need to do next. And she, she really understood that and she was very empathetic and lovely on the phone. She then made a note for the doctor who called me back after she'd finished seeing all of her patients that evening and I was able to talk that through with her on the phone. Again, it was a conversation I found difficult because I really don't like crying in front of other people and on the phone it has always just felt extra embarrassing to me because something about like the dead air while you're trying to contain yourself and not sob just feels... It somehow feels rude to me, like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not carrying on the conversation. How deficient of me socially while I'm here (laughs) trying not to absolutely sob my brains out and wake the baby. Um, But at that point, you know, I told her my story and I told her that I'd had this thought of they'd be better off without me and she kind of vocalised my internal experience by going, oof, (laughs) yes, we need to do something about that. Um, So at that point she suggested Increasing the sertraline dose, uh, and she also suggested going to see a psychiatrist to get more, I guess, specialist management of my experience. And she reminded me again that the mother baby unit was an option if I felt like things were getting out of hand. And so that felt good. I always feel good when it feels like I have a plan and something to be working towards. Um, but at the same time, in retrospect, it's really rough the way that our medical system works. You know, when you get a referral to a psychiatrist from your GP, you're kind of left to call around and find out which psychiatrists and psychologists have capacity to see you. And you're left doing all of these administrative tasks, which felt like an incredible amount of work to do when I was in the situation of, you know, struggling to find time and energy in the day to shower. I was very lucky that I managed to get a cancellation appointment with Michelle. You know, she was on the list of psychiatrists my GP had recommended, but I hadn't kind of picked her out in particular. And it just so turned out that she was in charge of the mother baby unit. So that was honestly feel very lucky that that happened because most of the other psychiatrists office I spoke to, it would have been you know, several weeks before I'd been able to get into them. It was maybe five days before I was able to go and see Michelle. That was, yeah, that was very fortuitous. So it's lucky that I ended up with an appointment with probably the perfect psychiatrist to see in my situation. It was another big threshold to cross to go and see the psychiatrist. I'd previously seen a psychologist, but it felt like another level of severity or intensity. I also, I had the baby with me and I was still in that phase of feeling like I needed to accommodate other people and not put them out or inconvenience them when I had the baby with me. So I was very anxious at the same time that she was going to wake up and cry during the appointment and kind of waste the psychiatrist's time, which is, again, funny in retrospect because I was paying for her time and because of her role she is very familiar (laughs) dealing with babies. So I remember I spent most of the appointment standing and rocking Tilly so she would be quiet and just kind of talked through my whole experience with Michelle and was really grateful from the outset at how... How she managed to be very empathetic, but also calm at the same time, and calm in a way that made me feel like my experience, while difficult, was not going to be difficult for her. It was difficult for me, but it wasn't going to be difficult for her to treat. And that was so important because I very much felt that aspect of mental illness that it is so isolating that. My mental illness had convinced me that I was uniquely damaged and uniquely Mm -hmm. suffering in a way that I couldn't express to other people, that other people would never understand and that no one would be able to help, that I was like messed up irretrievably. And that conversation with Michelle was one of the first glimmers of hope that she seemed kind of so unimpressed by my story. She was very she was very empathetic and, you know, uh, warm about this has been a really hard time for you, but she didn't seem shocked by anything I had to say. And that was a nice sign that, oh, maybe she has seen people like me before and maybe there is hope for me here.
0: And it's like throwing back to your C-section where the doctors are pretty much planning for lunch already.
1: Exactly. That's right. You know, I kind of had this feeling that, she would be like blown away and have to cancel all of her appointments for the rest of the afternoon to try and understand me. Or she would listen to me and then say, Well, that's really sad, but there's nothing I can do, so you'll just have to leave. It was so good that she kind of took it in her stride and said, Yeah, wow, like we need to do something for you, but we've got you, we've got it covered. And yeah, you're kind of run of the mill. I am still thinking about what my life is going to be.
0: <laughs> it's actually funny that you brought that up. Tegan <laughs> and I had the exact same conversation in Tegan's episode is that our mental illness convinced us. I am beyond broken. I'm beyond saving. Yeah, it's not that it's funny you brought that up, but it is. It's
1: (laughs) (laughs) well, it's that kind of gallows humor, isn't it? That gets you through Mm. the operations. I remember another very dear friend of ours who arrived a little later on that MBU, and pretty well every day for the first couple of weeks she was there, she would say, "Am I going to get well? Is it possible Mm -hmm. for me to get well?" And other people would say, "Absolutely, yes, you can do this. It's not." It's not going to happen tomorrow, but you will. And I think that is such an important role that mothers can play for one another, people who have gone Mm -hmm. through this experience, but then, of course, for medical professionals to play as well, to provide that framework for this isn't the end of the story for you. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but there's always options and there's always hope.
0: Yeah, and I... I remember doing the exact same thing. It felt like, well, all these other mums are going to get discharged and they're going to eventually be fine, but there's clearly something inherently wrong with me. And then I remember when this mum came along and I was like, I know exactly yes. why you're asking this. <laughs> Believe me. Absolutely. I am at the point, though, of my admission where I see there's nothing exceptional about me mm. and I will get better. But it's something that we have to learn on our own, I think, too.
1: I do think it's, despite all of my misgivings, it turned out to be one of the lovely things about the mother-baby unit of having that shared experience, to be around people who were right at the start of their admission, right at the end of their admission, and to be able to see the spectrum of changes within that. That was yet another quite tangible reminder, indication of the fact that recovery is possible which was yeah just just wonderful and i think just what each of us needed at different points
0: so at what point with your psychiatrist did mbu come into the conversation
1: So we spent this time discussing my experience and then towards the end doctors were saying we can help you these are the things I would consider combination of changes to medication and therapy and then she had this really lovely way of phrasing it of saying sometimes we do this on an inpatient basis we have this mother baby unit and that can be a really useful environment to accelerate your recovery like uh, do this in kind of this intensive way. But of course, other women prefer to do it on an outpatient basis too, and that's fine. We can accommodate that. And I thought, even as she was saying that in the midst of this experience, I thought that's such a lovely what's the word I'm thinking of? You know, it's such a lovely way to deal with the taboos that people have around becoming an inpatient in a psychiatric facility to frame it like that. You know, some people do this, some people do that. Whatever you need is fine. And I remember responding quite quickly and saying, actually, the mother-baby unit sounds wonderful. Yes, please sign me up. That sounds like just what I need. And I knew that in addition to the psychiatric and psychological supports, they also had mothercraft nurses and other supports to help with you know, the logistics of managing baby. And given that I was having such a tough time with Tilly's sleep, I was really looking forward to that as much as anything else of having people around all the time to say, why is the baby crying? (laughs) Quick, help me. So it really did. It honestly felt like such a relief. I think during the initial consult with Dr. I was Anxious that she would get to the end and say, you're not sick enough for the hospital. You know, I still kind of didn't understand quite how unwell I was. And I thought she'd say, yeah, for sure, you've got anxiety and depression, but you're fine. So it was a relief when she presented the mother-baby unit as an option. And I was in this weird, I guess, dialectic where I didn't think I was really unwell enough to need the hospital, but also was very relieved that I was able to go to the hospital (laughs) I kind of remember thinking to myself everyone there will probably be incredibly unwell I'll be like the healthiest person there and I really just need like a bit of extra support getting the baby to sleep and maybe the group therapy will be useful but you know I'll probably have to like stay quiet and pretend so that it's not obvious that I'm the only healthy person there (laughs) which in retrospect is very funny
0: (laughs) I love this and I'm laughing because obviously I had the same thoughts and this again is just how we're seeing ourselves at the time it's that I can't cope I need support holy shit I need to be here but also I really shouldn't
1: be yeah that's right like I'm not unwell it's just I cannot cope with my activities of daily living yeah.
0: <laughs> but yeah it's That's something that we have to get over.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was a barrier. Like, So I I kind of didn't understand before going into the MBU that I would have control over what happened with Tilly Mm. in the sense that like I'd seen in the description of the MBU that they would take the baby overnight and they would take the baby when you're in therapy. So I didn't realise that that would be recommended but, optional you know which in retrospect again like of course you're the mum you can keep your baby with you if you want to um but I had this like big anxiety and guilt around am I going to mess my baby up by not being with her 24 7 and by taking time for myself oh my goodness I must be an awful mother taking time off to get the help that I need and to get some rest so yeah I did kind of despite being relieved at the option of the MBU I did kind of go back and forth about Maybe I shouldn't do this because I'm not that sick and maybe it's going to be jeopardising Tilly's needs, which, again, with the benefit of hindsight, I'm just such a firm believer that almost the most important thing a baby can have is a well mother.
0: Yeah.
1: Food and a clean nappy are probably slightly more important, but there's very little else that should come before mum's sanity, happiness, well-being when it comes to setting the foundations for babies. So it was only over time that I realised I was doing it for myself and that is valid because despite being a mother, I'm still an important person. But it also turned out to be like a massive enabler for my parenting as well.
0: And postpartum OCD came into the Mm. picture around this time. I remember you saying you were having the thought in the hospital, what if I throw Tilly against the wall on repeat? And I'm just wondering when that was picked up as being an intrusive thought, being OCD.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. That was in the mix as well. For context, as well as anxiety, maybe 18 months, two years before I became pregnant, I had met with a psychologist to discuss OCD. And then as was my habit with psychology, done a little bit of work and thought, okay, I'm well enough now and just disregarded doing anything to improve my toolkit better. But yes, you're right. I began very early to have those thoughts of, what if I threw her against the wall? What if I were to suddenly drop her? What if I hurt her? What if I strangle her? And all of that just felt so, so kind of wild and terrifying. You know, it felt like there was maybe this... Beast within me that was going to be unleashed and do these horrible things. Um, when I had initially sought help for OCD before Tilly was born, it was around a particular awful brand of OCD, though almost every brand of OCD is awful, um, to do with thoughts of pedophilia that I had spent, mm. I had kind of on and off throughout adolescence and then early adulthood. Spent these periods of obsession where I was terrified that maybe I was a pedophile, maybe I was attracted to children and that made me an awful, irredeemable person who would never be able to be a parent, never be able to have kind of a proper adult relationship. So the initial period with Tilly in the hospital was focused around harm to her of a physical sort. But in the midst of that, around that time when I started having their depressive thoughts about maybe they'd be better off without me. I also felt this real resurgence of their pedophilia OCD where I began to think I am in a position of power with this incredibly vulnerable child. What if, you know, it was enough having that position of responsibility for Tilly to set off those thoughts of what if I were to hurt her Sexually, what if I were to harm the baby, to abuse the baby? No one would know. You know, it's no one would ever question that I would take her off on her own when I meant to be putting her to sleep, putting her down for a nap. I could abuse her and no one would question it. And I, you know, it got to the point where I would feel guilty after having been alone with her, putting her down for a nap. Not that anything ever happened, but just. The OCD had become so strong that I began to feel awful and guilty and, again, deficient as a parent just by having the opportunity to act out those terrible fears. And so, yes, that did come up in the initial conversation with doctors. I wasn't brave enough at that point to describe those more sexually related thoughts um, because it was another part of that isolating effect of mental illness that I was still relatively convinced that she might call the police if I disclosed those thoughts to her. Um, but I did tell her about the the thoughts about harming the baby, dropping her, throwing her, and it was another glimmer of hope that she said, "While you're waiting to come into the MBU, there's this book called." dropping the baby and other scary thoughts and you know can you have a more concrete reminder that you're not alone in this and you're not that special than the fact that someone actually wrote a book where the title is (laughs) one of your deepest darkest fears yeah and it was it felt like a load off even though I hadn't fully disclosed all of my obsessive thoughts but beginning that journey it felt quite important to like get that on the plate as well, to kind of flag that I was having those obsessive thoughts and to have that kind of immediately validated as a shitty experience but also acknowledged as nothing unusual or wrong was great, you know, that sign of hope.
0: And I mean there's two things I want to talk about here and it it all goes back to what you've said about the value we put on our thoughts, our feelings, our behaviours. OCD in particular, yes, everyone has intrusive thoughts. Not everyone has OCD. The difference being, there's many differences, but one of them being that if you do suffer from OCD, you're attaching value to your thoughts and particularly those intrusive thoughts. So then it's not just, hey, I had that thought. It's, hey, I had that thought and I'm a bad person or, hey, I had that thought. What if this means I'm crazy or they're gonna take the kid away from me or whatever it is. It's that value that we're attributing to that thought yeah, And again, I think what was so powerful when I first disclosed was that psychoeducation, I mm. think, of knowing that they're ego dystonic. That's yes. why you're distressed by them. You know, learning about that was such a light bulb moment. You know, it's not that I'm a bad person. Yes, these yeah. thoughts suck and, you know, I wouldn't wish them on anybody, but it's just learning, okay, so I won't actually act on them. Like, that in itself is such a big relief
1: yeah, exactly the fact that it is it's a thing that is happening to you that you're suffering from rather than you being a person who might cause suffering to others it's like such yeah. a such a massive flip and when you talk about the psychoeducation absolutely the only reason I had sought help before I became pregnant is that I saw an article on ABC News and there was a person that they profiled who was talking about exactly the same kind of thoughts that I had and that was the first time I thought maybe these thoughts are not because I am wrong and bad. Maybe this is an illness. Yeah, I feel like OCD is kind of, I think the paradigm of, expressing just how much you can make yourself suffer by thinking you as an individual and your character are to blame when it's in fact it's something that's happening to you.
0: No I agree and the other thing I wanted to talk about was what I think makes maternal mental health unique compared to non-maternal mental health is again that layer of I'm not just ill but my illness makes me a bad mum And again, that value, that judgment of ourselves, I think, increases our suffering. We're not doing it on purpose, but I think that that is what makes maternal mental health so horrible because it's not just I'm a bad person, we're attributing them to our parenting, to our mothering. And that is distressing. That is horrible. And yes, we've both, both of us have had anxiety before, but the distress and the level of suffering was never there until I became a mother
1: that's right and I think it's it's such a double-edged sword with early parenthood where you're suddenly exposed to this this incredibly vulnerable little creature and like a wonderful miraculous bouncing bundle of joy you know all of those cliches and so it's like it's such a such a drastic shift from all of the other relationships I'd had with friends and with family. You kind of know that both people in the relationship are flawed and trying their best Mm. and so on. Whereas a baby, not that they're perfect, but almost because they're, you know, they don't have the capacity to be manipulative or be mean or be difficult. And because they are so vulnerable and precious, your instinct is... Just to like have such a dichotomy in your relationship with them that they're this perfect, wonderful little thing that needs all of the good things in the world. Even for an entirely mentally well parent, that's a very difficult standard to live up to because you are always going to be imperfect. You'll stuff up and continue to stuff up. So even without those other added layers, there's heaps of guilt and shame and fear tied up. Once you layer on anxiety, OCD, depression, it's just another layer of awfulness.
0: Yeah, and you've summed that up so well. And there is Mm. that pressure because they are so quote unquote perfect. (laughs) And all our flaws as mothers come out and we're, aware of them because we're standing next to the perfect being who we don't want to ruin.
1: Totally. And it also feels like there's a bit of time pressure that you kind of become convinced about how much of an opportunity there is to set development alive in your child's brain and, you know, do all of these wonderful things for them to set them up for life And then if you're struggling in that newborn period, it feels like there's a ticking clock that if you don't get well and if you don't learn the skills and if you don't get a handle of it, it's not as if there's time for rupture and repair. Your baby's only a baby once. So I had this experience of every day I wasn't on top of what I needed to do and my health was a day that she was missing out on having a good mum. It was kind of the opposite of what I needed to recover was that extra layer of, okay, you need to wake up tomorrow and be well and have the energy to go to playgroup and the energy to do X, Y, Z. Just didn't do anything to help.
0: <laughs> and I guess on that note, a big part of an MBU, or our one in particular, was the Circle of Security program. Hmm. And I wonder how that helped <laughs> potentially this pressure that you've put on yourself. It was that useful? I
1: think it was. And I think that was a really welcome part of the MBU experience. Definitely the circle of security helped, I think, in two different directions. First of all, the whole framework acknowledging and identifying that parents aren't perfect. I think the statistic is is it 30% of the time you have to show up for your kid Mm. and show them that you care to meet their needs. For them to benefit psychologically. And moreover, that having rupture and repair in a relationship wasn't something to be avoided or afraid of, but that having times when you yell at the kids or times when you don't see or meet their need, first of all, is going to happen. So you have to accept it. But then also, those opportunities for repair are actually really important for the child's development as well. That it's yet another way you're modeling how to be and behave in the world to them and it's a real opportunity to show them you're a real person as a parent you know you're not godlike and so it's okay that you're not perfect and they're not perfect but also to show them this is the way that we lovingly come back together and say yes i messed up but i still love you and i'm still here for you and that doesn't change And then I think in the other direction, I found it quite validating because I could see that I was already adopting some of those skills of letting the child go out and explore, but then being there to receive them when they came back into you. I was putting some of those things into practice and I was prioritizing being a constant source of affection and security for my child, despite all of these upheavals and struggles I was having, that I was still doing my best to acknowledge her sadness or her anger or her gassiness or whatever it might be, (laughs) that I was still smiling at her and delighting in her and showing her just how much I was enjoying the experience of her being around even though my postpartum experience was in many ways quite shitty Um, so that was helpful as well I was learning new things I was learning that I could set more realistic expectations and also I was learning that I wasn't a bad mum after all. I was already doing many of the things that I needed to do to be good enough, you know.
0: Yeah, and you're right. I'm very glad that they incorporated that into the MBU. Yeah. Um, Is there Mm. anything you wanted to cover about your MBU experience before we talk about the rest of your journey? Because it didn't end with the MBU. No,
1: that's right. So I think... I'd reflect on a couple of things. I think, first of all, the environment was very useful living alongside other mothers who were having similar experiences. Everyone had their own unique challenges, but many similarities at the same time, particularly in a time where everything was still so COVID affected. You know, my mother's group had met a couple of times in person before it was not possible. And so the... Several weeks that I spent in the MBU, that was one of the first times that I'd been around other mums with babies of similar ages, let alone other mums who had already acknowledged that they were really struggling. So you didn't have some of those, some of that competitiveness and, you know, baby race atmosphere that can sometimes happen with mums groups. It was all, we had a baseline of... Yeah, we've all (laughs) struggled at times with this, so we can be quite real with one another. I think another thing that was useful for me was gaining exposure to different therapy modalities. So, a lot of the time that I had spent in psychology was chiefly CBT, and I found that quite difficult, useful in some ways, but it never really felt like it was entirely getting to the bottom of my problems. And one of the lovely therapists among the many things that I enjoyed in her sessions she brought up some other skills from dbt and acceptance and commitment therapy and that was just it kind of made me feel like I had more control over how my recovery might play out that I could look into different forms of therapy um and I think the other thing I'd say that I found super valuable was that support to do with parent craft And that turned out to be super useful as well. And they were able to help me with Tilly and to help with her sleep. I did, despite my initial misgivings, I did leave her with the nurses for the first Week and of course, as soon as she was in their care, she went back to sleeping six hours a night in a block. <laughs>
0: of course.
1: <laughs> and so I actually faced a, like an anxious superstition as I was leaving that it was only the environment of the MBU that meant she'd sleep. And of course, as soon as we went back home, she would stop sleeping. But they had really helped me with some of those settling skills and adapting to the needs of a slightly older baby in ways that thankfully did last. And I think as well made me feel better prepared for the ups and downs of sleep that were to come. And just as one final comment on that, you know, I remember even the first night on the MBU, I didn't sleep that well because it was a new environment and it was the first time that Tilly hadn't been with us. So it did take a while to get to sleep, but still I slept from something like midnight to 7.30 or eight and honestly woke up and went to check in that morning and felt like a whole new woman. I thought, okay, another couple of nights of that and maybe I can go home. Like it's um, (laughs) our rest as mothers matters and that is true I think for every mother but particularly when you have become unwell mentally, rest is just such a significant component of getting to a place where you can begin to recover and then even having the space to go to the group therapy programs and knowing that the nurses were just outside looking after the baby where I didn't have to think about whether she needed a nappy change was incredibly useful as well. And it was, yeah, that was, you know, talking about the community that we were able to form. Like it felt so much for that time we had together that we were a village, you know, that we came to know one another's babies and to be able to enjoy those funny moments of parenthood together.
0: I'm glad that you had the MBU there and I'm glad you were there with me as well. You were discharged shortly after I was. And yeah, I don't know if you want to talk about that and then what happened a month later. Yeah, so
1: I came home from the MBU. I think I ended up being there for four weeks that first time. It was a really strange experience to go from having nurses available around the clock to it just being the three of us at home again. I thought it would be much harder than it was, but it actually was easier than coming home from hospital with Tilly the first time. And I think a part of that was I no longer face the anxiety of worrying about whether or not I had a mental illness. I'd crossed that bridge. I had been to a mental hospital and survived it, and I had gotten better. I felt so much better than I had when I'd gone in that I knew I knew that it was okay to be mentally unwell and I knew that it was possible to to get help and to get better. And so we did quite well. Really, for several weeks there, we got back into a bit of a routine. I inquired about getting Tilly into daycare earlier than I'd thought, just to give me some free space and, you know, at least one day a week to look forward to. And so it felt like things were on the up and up, and, you know, I'd been able to accommodate a change to my identity to say, I have been mentally unwell. That is something I have experienced and I own that. You know, I was quite open with friends, but it's funny, you know, I then felt like, wow, look at me. I'm so I'm so refreshed and revitalized. I have this very like earthy, resilient understanding of myself as a person who has mental illness and is on that path to recovery. It turns out, I still had a somewhat superficial view <laughs> of my own identity and of how mental illness worked.
0: I'm actually going to pause my conversation with Sarah there for now and leave you with a snippet of what to expect next time.
1: That felt like a new, <laughs> a new, uh, a new low in how much I could frighten myself. It was kind of very unfortunately timed for us happening only a month or so after my admission had ended because it really showed me just how fragile
0: I still was. Join me in episode 21, where Sarah shares part two of her story. Thank you to all our listeners for holding space for today's story. If you like this episode please leave a review and rating to help me bring you more amazing content join the conversation and be featured on the podcast by sharing your story through my website perinatalstoriesaustralia.com if these stories are a bit too much to listen to or to read right now then come back another time protecting your mental health is the number one priority as always this podcast and its associated blog and social media accounts is not a substitute for therapy or for getting help. No medical advice is provided, only lived experiences. If any of this does resonate though, please reach out to a medical professional. See you next time.